a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children, of God, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Well, Father God, as we come before your word, uh, would you just speak um, the message that, that you're wanting us to hear? Um, would you just make that which we need to hear stick? Um, and we just trust you with the rest. Um, we trust you that there is so much in here in which you can use to shape us. And so God, we just ask that you would use this time um, to show us what it is that you're speaking to us. Uh, we just come before your word humbly. It's in your name that we pray. So you guys got all that? You understand completely? Uh, we're good to go? You know exactly what Hebrews 2 means? It's kind of a tricky chapter, isn't it? Uh, we addressed that in the beginning of chapter 2, or in the, be- in the end of chapter 1, how chapter 1 is answering this question of, is Jesus greater than the angels? And we recognize the reality that most of us don't typically walk around um, during life wondering, is Jesus greater than angels? And this chapter is pretty similar, um, because... Who here has really struggled through their week wondering, to whom is the world to come going to be subjected to? Anyone? Anyone thinking through that this week? No? Probably not. It's kind of an odd question, and it sort of seems like maybe it's not that relevant or not that important to us. So I'd ask you just hang with me here, um, because I promise that this is answering some pretty critical things that you probably have asked. You have probably wondered or asked, what is the purpose of my life at some point or another? Maybe you have asked, you know, why do bad things happen in the world? Maybe you've wondered, what is going to happen when Jesus returns? What's, what exactly is going to take place? Or even maybe, what is the whole Bible about? Uh, what is this whole thing about? Have you asked or considered some of those questions? Probably a little more likely. Probably it's all of us at some point have. And this is actually what we're going to see, kind of these big questions, what the end of Hebrews chapter 2 is going to answer. It's going to answer a lot of these big questions. Um, and so this, this chapter explains that, that when Jesus returns, or at least the world to come, um, it's not just going to be subject to angels, that God's plan throughout history um, was not just to come and fix the world and redeem it and then hand it to some spiritual, ethereal beings, and that our eternity, when Jesus returns, is not just floating in clouds like hearts. Like, that's not the end game. That's not the story that the Bible tells. And that's what the author of Hebrews here is saying, and then he quotes Psalm 8 to prove his point there. 
In verse 3, he goes into the citation of Psalm 8. I really love the way he cites it. He just says, you know, it's testified somewhere. Um, and I think it's pretty encouraging uh, to know that the, uh, the people being empowered by the Holy Spirit to record the very words of God were still allowed to just say, yeah, you know, it's in there somewhere. Uh, you know what it means. You know what it says. I'm right about it. So they just throw that in there. And then he gives us Psalm 8. And he gives us Psalm 8, this powerful psalm that's reflecting on all these things. And Psalm 8, it's a psalm written by David. And, and when you read it, you can just imagine David laying there, um, looking up at the night sky, looking up at the stars, and just being amazed. Um, just being amazed at the size of the stars, and just being amazed by creation. And being amazed that, as it says, that who, who is man that you are mindful of, God? Um, be amazed that the God who created all of creation has created mankind with such love and care and with authority that man actually has is is slightly lower than than the heavenly beings but he is crowned with honor and glory and he has dominion over the works of his hands and that you have put all things under his feet and so david is really just amazed at the important purpose that humans have on this planet this important purpose to have dominion over the world and of all the things that god created God left that to the care and to the work of mankind. And David is amazed by this. Now, where do you think David got that idea of the earth being given to be tended and cared for by mankind? He probably got it from Ray Straub, didn't he? Right, Genesis 1 or 2. That is where Ray will continually direct us to. Because if you know the very beginning of the Bible... Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his own image. And then in Genesis 1, verse 26, he says, And God says, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God gave mankind this, this job, this authority, this rule over the earth, and this dominion over everything. Um, and this is basically like, Christian belief 101, right? God put mankind there. Um, that humans are not just like spirits having some kind of physical experience at the moment. We were made of the dust of the earth, and we were made to work and to be God's representatives on the earth. And David is reflecting on this and saying that, that we have this amazing calling from God. It's kind of incredible that we are called and given authority to rule you rule, and everything is under subjection to him, as it says in the, uh, in the Hebrews passage here. Putting, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. And we've seen this throughout human history as mankind has kind of gone from, like, living in huts to skyscrapers, um, from, like, you know, little family farms to, like, salads in a bag, or from just, like, glass of milk from a cow to like Reese's peanut butter blizzards like these things are only possible because mankind has been given this this job this authority and this image of God to do these things and Hebrews is reminding us of this that mankind's dominion is essentially to everything small h here under subjection to him he left nothing outside of his control but now how many of us feel like everything is completely under our control Anybody? What about like nature, the birds of the air, the, the fish of the sea? Definitely not. I have a little 50-pound dog, 
that I can hardly get to do what I want her to do. Um, and I have house plants that I baby and tend to carefully, and somehow they still just die. And I would say even myself, I have a hard time ruling over or having dominion over myself. Um, there are still things that I say that I don't want to say, things that I do that I really don't want to do. And at times, I don't even feel like I have dominion, I have rule, I have control over myself. And I can really relate to Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but I do what I hate to do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do. But yet, this chapter says everything is in subjection to us. But yet, that's not our experience, is it? Because the chapter continues on, reminds us of that past, and then says, but at the present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, right? The present, we do not see this as being the way things work. And if you were to go back into the Genesis account, just two chapters later, when you get to Genesis 3, you have the fall of humanity, when sin entered the world, um, when mankind, who had been given this great authority and this great job to rule and to have dominion, lost that authority, lost that power. And instead of being in control of everything, now we even struggle to have control of our own hearts, right? We even struggle in that sense, that something essentially went horribly wrong. And so the writer of Hebrews here is reminding us that even though God had given us this task and this authority and this great rulership and dominion over the earth, it lasted about 10 minutes, and then something happened when sin entered the world and death entered the world. And if you noticed in this chapter that we read, the word death is mentioned five times. It's mentioned five times in there because when sin entered the world, so too did death. And so it's like the world just lives under the shadow of death at this point. And that one of the things that Jesus is going to have to do in order to fix things and make things right as it says in verse 14, um, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That essentially because of sin and death, not everything is in subjection to us. Not everything is working the way it is supposed to be working. That what happened in Genesis chapter 3 uh, meant that, that we, we lost control. This is where things went. And he mentions here um, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Um, and when you read through um, the New Testament, you'll see the devil referred to as essentially having this authority, so to speak. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, talked about how the devil is the, the god of this age, with lowercase g there. And Jesus, in John 14, calls him the prince of this world. Um, that the world is currently living in this fallen state, and he has much more authority than he is supposed to have. Um, and it's interesting when Jesus refers to him as the prince. Uh, one of the things that we've been going through in our study in Ezekiel is that any time there was a, uh, a leader that was installed in the nation of Israel, um, who was not the rightful king, but maybe like installed by the nation of Babylon, God would never refer to that king as the actual king, but instead as a prince. Um, basically to remind them that you're the illegitimate king. You might be a little prince, but you are not the king. 
And so that's kind of the description that Jesus gives the devil here. He might be in charge and have a lot of power at the moment, but it's illegitimate. It's illegitimate here. And so it's kind of the bad news. Um, the bad news was we had this great, beautiful calling, great, beautiful authority. Sin entered, and now we are not the ones in control. But there's actually one who, through the power of death and through the fear of death, subjected people to lifelong slavery. But the good news comes in verse 9, then. Because while we might not see everything in subjection to him who God placed Eden in subjection to, what we do see is Jesus, right? Verse 9 says this. Um, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so it reminds us here that Jesus, the one who created the heavens and the earth, all that exists, didn't just sit back and say, hey, I gave you one job, uh, and you messed it up, so you need to fix it. But he actually came and did something about it. He actually came and tasted death for us, as it says there. He gave us grace, right? And when we think about grace, um, we think about all the good things. Forgiveness, restoration, healing, um, the position that we now have. Grace is nothing but good things for us, right? It's amazing grace. And we know that we have that because of what Jesus tasted for us. He tasted this death, this bitterness of death, so to speak. And this chapter goes on um, to kind of explain how, by doing so, Jesus became the founder of our salvation, the founder here. And this, uh, this word for founder, it's, it's translated in a lot of different ways in various versions. Sometimes it says um, the author, the inventor, the pioneer, the captain, or even the hero. Um, and the word that's used here for founder is the Greek word Archegos, um, which often in most Greek mythology is the word that is used for hero. Um, Hercules, in the stories of Hercules, is the Archegos. He's the hero. Essentially, something bad was happening that no one was capable of doing anything about, and so the hero had to come and do what no one else is able to do. And so that's essentially what the author of Hebrews is reminding us here, that Jesus went somewhere and did something that no one else was going to be able to to do. And he continues on in what the hero did. And he explains that in in 12 and 13 there, that this is all that the the hero, Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, has done. That Jesus, the hero, has defeated the devil. He's defeated evil. And then he gets into this picture of Jesus defeating the devil and taking the power away, and taking the fear of death out of the picture. Taking the fear of death out of the picture. And what's really fascinating um, is the way all this is tied together in this chapter. Because we mentioned that he cited Psalm 8 earlier. Um, We didn't read the whole thing. But the use of Psalm 8 is pretty fascinating in here, because Psalm 8 was written by David. It was a psalm written by David, 
And if you look at the very beginning of it, it has a heading on Psalm 8 that says that it's a psalm of David and it's to be played according to the Giddeth. Um, it's to be played according to the Giddeth. And it's kind of confusing at what exactly that means. Um, but when you look at the psalm, and if you know much about David, you'll notice that this psalm just seems to be David on like his best day. You know, David had some high highs and some low lows, lots of really low lows and lots of really depressed psalms. But in this one, he seems to be having a really good day. He seems to be pretty happy. So you wonder, well, what, what got David in such a good mood? Well, the hint comes in that little phrase, according to the Giddeth. Um, because most scholars say that the Giddeth um, it's a musical style. It could be an instrument, but most are pretty sure it's a musical style. And it's a musical style that comes from the Gittite people. Um, and so to say, play it according to the Gittith, or play it on the Gittith, like some would say, would be like to say, play it the way a Gittite would play it. It's like, hey, play this song with like a country western vibe. Or like, play it like the Irish would play it, so to speak. Make it sound kind of like that. And so the Gittites, yeah, they were this people group. And this was a musical style. And the Gittites were a people group that lived in a city called Gath, or Gat, but we'll probably read it as Gath. Now, does anyone know who the individual was who played a very important role in David's life, who was actually born in Gath? Right, okay, so a guy about Yetal, not very nice, Goliath. Goliath was actually born in the city of Gath. And so historically, what the Jews taught is that David either wrote this psalm immediately after he defeated Goliath, or sometime after, but thinking back to what happened when he defeated Goliath. And so David is, is just praising God for the victory that took place. Like he went from little shepherd boy and like cheese handler to hero to Archegos, to the one who defeated this giant. Later, Kevin. <laughs> to the one who defeated this giant. And so now he's just marveling at like, you know, God, I'm so weak, I'm so small, but yet you have accomplished such great things through me. You have, you have given me your image and your ability to do these things. And so to, to sing it according to the Giddeth was kind of like a trash talk thing. Um, it's like if you had just beaten the Irish, and you're like, I'm going to write an Irish jig about it. It's like, go David, that's brutal. But, but if you know the story of David and Goliath, very familiar, you'll know that the people of God were being terrorized by this giant. Um, he didn't even seem human. He almost seemed like beyond human. And Goliath wanted to make this deal with them that it's going to be a 1v1, him versus their best guy. The winner gets to make slaves of the losers. And so no one wanted to fight Goliath, not even Saul, who was supposed to be the king. Out of fear of death, they didn't go up, they didn't fight him. And none of the Hebrew army wanted to have a part of that. Do you hear kind of the Hebrews 2 themes coming out a little bit? Okay, and so what happened instead was this little guy who was much lower than the giant, who would eventually become king, roll a rock out of his little slingy sling, and takes out this giant. He defeated the enemy. He defeated the one who, through fear of death, was threatening to put everyone in slavery. And if you read the whole story of David and Goliath, you'll know that David will run up with his sword and, and finish the job. And the Philistine army, all of Goliath's guys, were so terrified, they go running away. And David's men were so motivated that they go chasing after 
and they go chasing after them, celebrating, and they have this huge celebration because of the victory that they had here, this underdog victory that took place. And this is essentially what is being described in Hebrews chapter 2 here, right? This same thing. And so this, this same similar victory that Jesus had over evil, David's story is pointing to that. And so when we look at the, the celebration that his own soldiers and his own men were able to have, that we are actually able to have that same celebration. That we can sing the chorus that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Um, when we sang the song just earlier, that we're no longer slaves to fear. Right? And so what this seemingly tricky chapter is reminding us of is a rightful purpose, how it was supposed to be, and then the bad news, and basically how that got taken away, and how it sort of seemed hopeless, like we would just be terrorized by death our entire lives, but that then Christ came in and did something about it. Christ came in as the hero who would defeat death, and that one day he will restore us to this great purpose. And we know even today, you know, when we think about the idea of, of ruling or dominion, uh, we don't usually have positive thoughts about it. Like when you think of um, like man's dominion or dominating of nature, you probably don't think of good things. Or if you think about someone dominating you, you probably aren't like thrilled about that because this whole concept has just been ruined for us. Because even our best examples of ruling, even our best heroes like David, kind of the best of the best, still, you know, aren't very, aren't very great um, when it comes to it. Even though David was basically the best of the best when it comes to a hero, um, he was still a deeply troubled man. Um, his life was marked by violence, marked by lies, marked by abuse, marked by sexual immorality, and just marked by a lot of bad things. And so that's even like the best example of human ruling that we have is one of the reasons that we need Jesus to be the true hero, to come in, to be the founder of our faith, the one who has entered in to the messiness of human ruling, and who takes all of the, the lies, the mistakes of domination that we make, and he takes it all upon himself, as it says in this chapter, and then instead of defeating his enemies through the same conventional ways that David would have done it. But Jesus actually died for his enemies then. And he wins by grace, as it says here. That he takes all of the nastiness of humanity to the grave with him. He takes it all with him. And because of this, that our trajectory is now gone kind of back on track. And that one day, he's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And so what God wants us to understand in this chapter um, is the result of our fallen nature, just how much we need him. But yet, because of what he did, that one day he will put everything right. And essentially, even though we still live in this awkward in-between, where we don't currently see everything in subjection to him, we're still invited to live knowing the end of the story, knowing that the kingdom of God will come, knowing that we don't have to fear 
death, but that we can live into what we know is coming today. And for the Hebrews that this this message was addressed to, this was a profoundly encouraging thing because these are people who had just given their life to Christ and had made made their life more difficult, and they were just needing something to hold on to. And God, in this in this chapter that would have spoke so directly to them, just reminds them that the best is yet to come. That though you don't see everything in subjection the way it's supposed to be, the way Genesis 1 described it, but you see more of Genesis 3 happening, that what Jesus did as the hero of our faith gives us a hope for what is to come. It gives us the ability to live into that today. And so that same celebration, um, that joy that David's crew had, we can have today. We can have today. Because Jesus defeated our enemy. And now, we need to live for him. So would you bow your heads, and would you pray with me? Well, Father God, um, we just praise you. Uh, we just come before uh, texts like this, uh, humbled, humbled at all that you have done for us. We just recognize the world is not the way that that you've intended it, but God, that through our our sin and our mistakes, that we caused we caused so much um, to go awry. But God, we just thank you um, for you being the one um, who can do all and who has saved us. That you came and died to make amends for our sin and to defeat evil. And so, God, as we move into this week. Um, would you just show us um, what it means to live into that? Would you just show us how it is um, that we are called to live for you in light of this great truth? And God, as we live in this in-between where we do not see um, the world as, as it is, uh, we just trust you. We trust that you use all things for our good. And we trust that one day you will set everything right. And so we commit to being a people who live according to the kingdom even today people who, who rule the way that you have called us to, um, who act um, the way you showed us how to act. And so Jesus, we just invite you um, to continually speak to us through this passage. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
spirit strong in me, my flesh may fail, my God, you never will. reminder, um, stick around for a little bit afterwards um, to talk about Mission Mexico and all that's coming up with that trip. And as you go, um, would you go with the words of Romans chapter 8? But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit. You have the Spirit of God living in you. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of the sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. So common ground. Go in peace. And that the same power that conquered the grave, the same spirit that empowered David unto defeat Goliath, lives in you. So grace and peace, common ground. Have a wonderful week.